Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Friends, hello, welcome. We are excited to have um, Karen Maybe on our podcast today. She is, holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and special education from Vanderbilt University and a master's and specialist degrees in educational psychology from National Lewis University. She is a nationally certified school psychologist, experienced in evaluating and counseling students with learning, social, emotional, and behavioral difficulties. And for the last five years, she's been on faculty for training new consultants for IECA, which is the Independent Education Consultant Association. And we're, we love working with Karen. Um, we've gotten to know her over the years, and we just really appreciate you being on the show. The show. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. I'm so honored that you guys invited me. I love doing this work. I've been doing it for 20 years. And I love working with all the different people that um, help and support the families I work with. So thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we love having you. I I don't know if you know this, but Karen referred a friend of hers to Techie for Life and helped us get our first student almost seven years ago. Um, And that was a big help because we were actually able to open Techie for Life. (laughs) Yeah, Apparently, you have to have students to start a school and you you were the biggest help right in the beginning. So we've loved you since that day. <laughs> Thank you. And I remember touring as you were opening and moving in and having this. So look, look what's happened after all that time. You guys have done some amazing work. Thank you. I'm wondering if in a, in a nutshell, for those who haven't heard, what do you do for a job? What is it? What does a consultant do? And then what do you do What do you specialize in? What's your expertise and uh, where do you focus? So what I do and what I've been doing for the past 20 years is helping parents with their children, children ages 11 to 28, find residential placement for their kids that are struggling. And they can be struggling and just need the support of a smaller school, or they can be struggling with addiction, neurodiversity, who knows what it is. What mostly, I wish it was, it's it's not a technical term, right? What I work with is kids that are stuck, that after all the help the parents and the team give this young person, mm-hmm. it's still enough, not enough structure and support to have them change. The thread that that ties all my very diverse families together is this. They have a child that's developed a negative coping mechanism to deal with the world, whatever's hard for them, a way to avoid what's hard. Maybe they just go to bed. Maybe they're angry to make everybody go away. Maybe they're using drugs. Who knows? A way to avoid. The parents and the and the support team at home try to get tutors and different schools and do whatever it is to help that child learn a new positive coping mechanism that won't have them burn all their bridges. And the problem is this, their child can't slash won't, and they can't won't 
changes day to day, hour to hour. Right. Their child can't or won't get on board to change. They yeah. just need more structure. Almost every family I work with, the family would love to try another way to intervene at home. That's never the issue. The issue is, you know, can you send your kid to another therapist while they sit there and just stare at the therapist and go, my parents are obnoxious. So that's that's the issue is what kind of scaffolding can we find? And because I come from the world of special education, I understand the world of least restrictive environment. Now, the negative with some of these more complex kids, because by definition, if you need if you need residential, you have a complex kid. If they just had ADHD, they wouldn't be calling any of us. They'd be having a party. You know, that's that's not who we have walking in in our door. So it's what we are doing, what I feel I am doing is flipping the special education script. We are not doing, because the problem with least restrictive environment, by the time we get these kids, is they have failed multiple, multiple times. Yeah. Give a little help, they fail. A little more help, they fail. So what I feel passionately about, this overlaps to how I work and what I do. And and part of my philosophy is I'm going to flip the script. And we're going to do most restrictive. And I don't mean most restrictive like bars on the walls. I mean most supportive. We're going to build up the scaffolding around this kid so they can't fail. Yeah, let's get out ahead of it instead of react and react and react. Exactly. Let's get out ahead of build it. Build up tons of evidence for why you're broken and you're a failure and you're never going to make it. Yeah, we, we know that. So let's scaffold this all up. And that's why a lot of the kids that we work with start with wilderness or something because there's no electronics and there's no way to struggle with that. So let's work on everything else. Let's do the most support we can in the least um, risk of failure and then slowly take that scaffolding down. So that's how I work is to really assess. And the core of my work is assessment. At every level, at home, what worked, what didn't. It's not a judgment on was that a bad school or was that, you know, did the parents or the therapist, it's, oh, well, outpatient therapy didn't work because that child's perception of what really happened is off. So how can an outpatient therapist work with that? You have to have somebody see the reality. So it's assessing what worked, what hasn't from both a cognitive, a developmental, and a clinical perspective, and then really finding a place with that scaffolding. So that's how I work. That's great explanation. I don't want to get off on this topic, but I'm just going to ask, when parents who are considering interventions for their kids look at more restrictive environments like wilderness or treatment centers, they're getting all of the crap right now about how horrible the programs are, what would you say in a nutshell to parents who are looking at placing their child outside of their home in a treatment or wilderness program? What's been your experience? What would you want them to know? So let's just understand a couple things. One, sending your child outside of the home is traumatic for everybody. We would only do this work 
if living at home wasn't also traumatic for the child and the family. That child is deeply, deeply struggling. So is the whole family. So we're looking for this. So let's just start that. Let's also accept that there are bad programs out there. That's why you work with people like us. And us. so that we'll take care of that. Let's also accept that treatment 20 years ago, where a lot of this stuff comes from, you had a timeout room. Harvard was sending kids with mental health issues into a timeout room. It is what was the accepted mental health treatment 20 years ago was not trauma-informed. That's the truth. Yeah. And that is not just for private pay. That's everywhere. That's Harvard, Menninger, everywhere. Where we are now at understanding how trauma has has impacted the mental health of our, of humanity is vastly different. What the peace, the peace of mind that young people have in the wilderness without electronics has made it an unbelievably safe place to do trauma work. And what has happened and evolved in that field and and the clinical understanding of this has been deeply impactful for many families. So while on the internet, you will find many wounded souls and a lot of pain and a lot of negative about this, you'll find a lot of pain and a lot of negative stuff, you know, everywhere in the Vanity Fair things. That's what's out there. So I encourage all these families that are struggling with this to talk to other parents who have really been there. This is not about Google reviews. This is about really learning the people and the families. And the families that make this decision, I know wilderness is a gift. I know this. And And kids that go there know this. It is the rite of passage that we're missing in this world. So I understand the concern. And I'm here to help you feel safe. Thank you so much. That was really well explained and I think helpful for people that have insecurities around it or just don't understand or don't know yet. Um, So I want to ask you, Karen, what are you seeing as some of the biggest issues that families are facing when they come to you for help? So it is absolutely that complex kid that has maybe some emotional regulation issues, yet their toolbox, their cognitive toolbox, what they have available to them to deal with this is limited and not what somebody else has. If you have a very, very slow processing speed and I'm going to make something up now and, and you are in group therapy with a whole bunch of people talking a lot, it's very hard to keep up. So what you're going to do and how you're going to do this and how this has impacted families now 
is during the pandemic, these are a lot of young people that have required support systems, social support systems, academic support systems, clinical support systems, and frankly, virtual support systems did not work for them. And so they are really struggling. And it is my job and I feel passionate, and this happens often, if, if I, have a, I have a young lady now who's truly struggling with her social relationships and managing her emotions, and her parents, and it's not her parents' fault, they did all the research and what do you do with a kid that struggles with emotional re um, regulation, and they've read about it, and they said evidence-based, and everybody's talking about evidence-based therapy, is DBT. I go, fine, but nobody did research on DBT's effectiveness if you have severe dyslexia. And DBT is a language-based intervention. Right, very much so. And my role as an ed consultant, who I'm not the teacher, I'm not the things, and I'm not the therapist, but is to bridge that. If you don't have the cognitive wherewithal to do DBT, it's not going to work. And none of this research-based, evidence-based was done on dyslexic kids. They didn't even test them. So those are a lot of the kids that I work with is kids that are overwhelmed for whatever reason. And they find this coping, you know, sometimes they're getting high and they figure that out, but they really don't know how, you know, their difficulty in stopping getting high. They feel if I don't do that, I won't have a friend. That's yeah. a big deal. Most That's of the parents... Most of the people listening to our podcast, their students, clients, children are neurodivergent. And I think a lot of what you said does fit for them, but I don't know if there's anything more specific towards those who have neurodiverse brains that maybe you're seeing biggest issues, biggest things that are helping, what you're running up against. Is that population changing, growing? I think here's what we know about that population that population is more broadly defined. And I feel passionate about as I, there is support in this world for the really higher functioning kind of neurodiverse kids. You can, they can kind of do this. And the very lower functioning, it's the middle of the road. That's very hard. How they much lost. they're lost in the system. The, you know, there are no IEPs anymore when you're over 18 or 21 and, and junior colleges really aren't set up for it and figuring out how to figure out a script for life. So it's these kids that need more support than the world is set up for their launch into independence and figuring out how independent can they be. And it's a lot of two steps forward and one step back. Those kiddos and who you do is that group. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they're really sophisticated as well because 
not just because of their middle-of-the-road neurodivergent disability, but because they can't manage things like adoption or trauma or abuse or OCD or other mental health issues. They're just bound to multiply um, their issues, but they're smart enough to have a lot of anxiety. Um, oh, and, you know, anxiety, of course they're anxious. Because they're smart enough to know it's not quite working out. Why isn't it working out? And it makes you very anxious if you're going into a social situation and you're worried that you're not going to. It's anxiety provoking. And guess what? Not just for the young person, for the parents. Right. Everybody's anxious. Right. You know, what's going to work? And the other thing is adding in, you know, what's the difference between a meltdown if you're on the spectrum and bipolar or so? Right. It's hard to see. Is there one or did we just make up different words? A lot of this is meeting the child and understanding that the words that are just made up by a bunch of people in a room to get insurance. And these are individuals and peoples with brains and a hyper vigilance and anxiety kind of can look really similar if you're just so how do we help this and really see the child as a child beyond a diagnosis? This is how their brain works. What do you have to do? And the diagnosis is helpful to get coverage, might be helpful to work with people to have a common language to describe the type of support that might help. That helps. It might help a young person to use the language of on this to advocate for themselves to say I'm on the spectrum I have a hard time with this whatever language they need but honestly you know it's really figuring out that kid yeah let me ask you on that assessment for parents for a kid who has spikes in strengths and dips in in weaknesses so that they're not just even across the board an IQ issue, which would be in some ways easy, but when there's more sophisticated, how do you help parents navigate honest assessment? And what what do you tell parents when they're trying to figure out, am I, if I lower my expectations, am I bailing on my kid? If I keep my high expectations, won't that help them achieve more? Um, what's unrealistic, what's realistic, how do you help them navigate that? So this is something I feel very passionate about. I think part of my, many families call me and say, how often are, you know, what's your success rate? I'm like, oh my goodness, these are human beings. What is, so what my job is, is to redefine success. And it's to set up whatever support systems are there. This is really what I'm focusing here on is young adults and what this looks like. So it's setting up the support system and seeing what the young person can access or not. 
and what they're ready for or not. And backing up, my passion for this came, I I have a 37, man, am I aging myself? I have a 37-year-old daughter who is on the spectrum. Now, as you can imagine, she's 37. So her diagnosis changed her whole life. She's very, very bright, very verbal. Like one of her diagnoses through the, it is nonverbal LD. And that kind of gives a picture, very high verbal abilities, very low social and spatial. And her favorite place was the classroom. And Mm. through therapeutic interventions, we got her through high school. We got her into the nerdiest college ever known to mankind with support services. She couldn't make it. And it was the co-occurring anxiety and depression with this diagnosis that just did this. And then in addition, at that time and that age, her continuing to be stuck in, it's either my fault as her mother, right? Or the school's fault or the friend's fault. She was just stuck. And we tried a lot of different interventions. They worked or they didn't. And I kept helping her find a place academically because that was her happy place was a school. And then I just let go. I just let go. And I thought when she's ready to really do all of the organizational thing, and this is a young lady with 130 IQ. She called me at age 29. So I had waited 10 years and done some help and some not and watched her fail a bunch of times. It was hard. And she called me and said, I want to graduate from college before I'm 30. And I said, if you can change, you know, you give me the plan. You change all the credits. You figure out what major. You give me the plan and have it make sense and I'll support you. And she did it. She changed credits from three different colleges. She changed her major. She had a whole thing. She had an advisor. She went on the campus. She made the whole thing happen. And she got a degree in 18 months. And had you stayed involved, it may have just tripped her up. The thing is, a lot of this is where she, and from the beginning, and I'm sure your parents can feel familiar to this, If people asked me, how old is your daughter? I'm like, well, how old is she intellectually or how old is she emotionally? She was always seven to eight years behind emotionally. Always. And so a lot of it was just giving her some support and waiting. You know, letting her live with me for a while. She got a job at Apple. She was top rated. She couldn't show up on time. I had to leave the house. I had to leave the house and have coffee, even though she had to be at work at 11. I wasn't going to wake her up. She was 25. So I left the house. She's, she's you know, okay. I love that you were okay letting her have her time frame, but it probably took a while for you to learn when to back off and say, okay. Oh, my heavens. It was quite a dance. And hard. Yeah. Hard. 
in some ways. And then on the other hand, I had, as you can imagine, as we all can imagine, family members, you know, she needs to be on meds. And I'm like, yep, I do. She has the name of a doctor. She has the name of a thing. And she's 25. And frankly, I had been running that for 20 years. And I was tired. Yeah. So there's a piece of this. By the time they get to 25, you're like, I'm done. <laughs> I Like, this is yours. So, yes, it's hard. But also... You get tired, or I, I'm sorry, I got tired. (laughs) (laughs) And so part of that was easier than other people would think. I'm like, I've given her all the resources and now she's working with a psychiatrist and now she's working with a therapist and now she really owns it. And to me, so my anecdote of when I knew we were going to be okay, she got a job. And she called me after the first week and she said, I don't know what to do. And I said, what's going on? And she said, my boss is sarcastic. And I said, oh, well, what are you going to do? And she said, do I tell him I don't understand sarcasm or do I just leave the room? Should I look for another job? What do you think? I said, well, those are also pretty good positives and negatives. So she talked about all the different options. And then I go, you make the right decision. Now, five years before that, she would have just quit that day, called me and said, he's a jerk. Right. He's a jerk. To get her to know, and by the way, he may have been a jerk, but you know, who yeah. cares? There's surprise, surprise. Sometimes you work for jerks. So when I knew that she wasn't calling me to blame him, that she knew it was her brain and that's what made it hard. And that I didn't have to solve it. It was just her brainstorm person. I can still be her brainstorm person, but she now knows that she is a person of worth and her brain works differently. That's all. And that's huge. And it it sounds like too, like her success with wanting to finish her degree, like that was her her driven. That was her goal. That wasn't you pushing her on that. Like she made that shift of this is what I want. And then she was able to care enough about it that she was able to bring all that it took to actually make that happen. And I do, I think about parents that um, kind of have different goals than their kids have. (laughs) Their kids have certain goals and they, as a parent, they have different goals and there's a conflict there. And, And what do you say to that? Or what do you do? Like, Our most important job as parents is to meet our child, to see who they present as themselves. And that's part of them becoming a young adult. I knew then, I know now that my child's greatest gift is her intellect. How she uses it and where she, that's up to her. I can't, it's her life. It's not mine. And my job is to support her goals. Now, that doesn't mean to say that every one of us parents doesn't sit there and go, you know what she should be doing. I mean, we can think it till the cows come home, but it's not our life. I love how you said that. I love, I've never heard it said that way that our job is to meet our child. Yeah. I love that shift as opposed to it's my job to create them. Mm -mm. Or make them be successful. (laughs) No. 
No, it, it really, here's what we all know. If you're a parent of more than one child, Let's go back to when they were babies, right? And you read some parenting book. I, I, I loved by the time I had my third kid, I just threw those suckers away, you know, and they can tell you how to get a child to go down for their nap and go to sleep. Well, it works for one kid and it doesn't work for the next. That's the truth. We all know that. You look back at your kids and you're like, yeah, that's not, that didn't work, right? So... So it's meeting your child. Who is that kid? Are yeah. they coming and saying, so here's one thing, especially with neurodivergent kids or even, you know, let's do a simple, let's do universal. This do a simple kiddo with a really serious um, reading learning disability. This kiddo's never going to like school. Like never. Reading is miserable for this kid. It's just, you know, they're not happy there. They're making it through it, but they're not happy. That's okay. When that young person finds something worth doing that means something in their life, then they'll go to school to figure that out. But English 101 will never, like never, yeah. unless that's the path to get where they, so you need to sit and wait. And introduce them to different things and see what they want. When they figure that out, which takes unbelievable patience for us as parents. But And I think that's a really important piece to understand. Just with neurodivergent brains, they are not motivated by the societal expectations. They aren't motivated by um, linear. You're supposed to do this, 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 this in this order. They're actually motivated by their passion, what their interests are, where their values are, um, what is interesting to them, right? That actually is what motivates them. And when they get tapped into that, they actually bring and like, they're able to bring the capacity when that's there. That's why parents saying, well, my kid isn't motivated. Well, what are they not motivated on? Usually it's the stuff you're wanting them to do, but they're highly motivated in the things that they love or enjoy or that pique their interest. Right. Or they have ADHD because they won't focus on things that they hate, but they can focus all day long on things they like. So I don't know why that's ADHD. Or even how my, you know, when they find somebody cute enough in their life, they're going to start taking showers. Watch right. how that happens. Yeah. And now the shower is relevant and <laughs> useful in my life. And now I'm motivated. Yeah. Right. And frankly, it's not because mom wants you to take a shower. It's because the cute girl, you know, maybe she'll look at me. It's. And taking the time, because the truth is this with the neurodivergent kiddos, making your life work is way harder than it is for us. It's way harder to go to school and manage and have a friend. It's just hard. So they need to find something that really matters. And we have to wait and again, it's hard because part of them are talking about things that make sense. And in our head, we're going like, how are you going to make that work? How are you going to pay rent? How are you going to, we are thinking as an adult through all this stuff and we just have to wait and set it up. And before you know it, they come to us. Like my daughter, it's like, I want to do this. Okay. How are we going to do it? 
And how are you going to pay rent? How are you going to do that? And she still, even to this day, will come up with ideas. And I'm like, could we walk through the steps of this? Well, and I do this with our son all the time too, but it has to, there has to be a relationship there where he trusts me enough to bring that to me. And if I've damaged that relationship with all my shoulds and judgment and have tos, it, it will block that. Yeah. Karen, we get a lot of parents who in, in reality have had to be helicopter parents just to get their kid not to be dead, just to get them through high school, just to get them anything, right? So that their teeth don't fall out. They've had to make sure they brush their teeth because that's going to cause their child so much pain. How do you, how do you help parents? What recommendations do you have for making this shift from, I'm, I want to go from their parent to a mentor because the way you talk, you did it and it worked and you did it naturally, but that was easier said than done. Oh, it was a mess with me and my daughter, right? It was a mess and it took a long time and I made a lot of mistakes. But here's the thing at core. These kids have needed us as parents to translate the world for them. They've needed it. You have needed to be the advocate. You have needed to be in that IEP. You have had to do it. You have had to champion and, and be that person for your kid. So it is not unnatural. It is what you do. And nobody's really understood your kid, but you, you have been the person. So how do we transition that, that your kid becomes their own advocate, that they understand their brain, that they understand this, and it's going to be messy, but hopefully empowering. And it's a message of power to your child that you can do this. And one of our problems as parents is when our child has difficulty and has whatever their meltdown looks like, gets angry, gets scared, whatever it is, what we see in this, you know, 20-year-old, we see the scared little kid. We see it. And the rest of the world doesn't. So I think what's important for the work that you guys do and I do is I tell parents, I see that. I see the scared little kid and him being a booger, right? I know he's acting like an idiot, but I see the scared little kid. And guess what? The rest of the world doesn't. So how can we help him behave in a way that, that's going to get him help with this. Where is his safe place to go? We got to help him do this. We can't get mad at the rest of the world that they don't see the scared little boy. We have to help him keep himself safe in this. So to translate that, you cannot fight this battle. And Frank, you know, I have a young man right now, like the most adorable young man, gotten a little little tiny bitty fender bender. All right. Panicked, left the scene. All right. Now we got judges. Now we got police. Now we got this. Does anybody understand that we have a neurodivergent kid here that was panicked and just couldn't? No. Yeah. So how do we help this whole situation? It's empowering the child to know, oh my goodness, I'm over, you know, I'm over my skis. Who do I call? What do I do? And I think our first role as parents, honestly, 
not so much about how you treat your child, although it's meeting your child, but it's also you can't treat the whole world and bosses in college like an IEP meeting. Those are done. Yeah. You 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 can't go and make his job like like that's you can't make the job fit them. Yeah. It's it's so uh, here's here's my bottom line. Okay. Every functioning adult self-accommodates. Accommodations are something we fight for for our children. But I, okay, my accommodation for math is I have a math tutor, me currently as an adult. Without my math tutor, I get arrested. You know what they're called? Accountants. Accountants. Yeah. I can't do my own taxes. Other people get mad at me for it. I'm not pleased with it. I have an accountant. I know I can't do it. I hired one. I'm good. Yeah. Doesn't, You're an adult. Mean, I think, doesn't mean I think I'm stupid. I self-accommodate. Every functioning adult finds themselves a quiet place and extra time to do hard work. It's going into the office on a Sunday. It's doing whatever you got to do. It's self-accommodation. That's how functioning adults make it work. My daughter figured out how to self-accommodate in her lifestyle, who she lives with, because she figured out after trial and error, because it was a mess, she can't live alone because she isolates and and, and then never leaves her room. She can't live with uh, somebody that expects to socialize. Then it becomes weird. They can't figure out boundaries. So she's figured out her roommate the source because she need is um, PhD candidates. They don't party and they kind of have a special interest and they're a little weird and they're highly intellectual and they'll share dinner once a week. Yeah. I love it. And they have their own thing going on. They don't want they have their own thing going on. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. accommodation, right? It's and not- being able to be in tune and recognize is that this is what's going to work for me. This is what I do well with. And to have that level of like finding that and not somebody else telling me what it's going to look like, but figuring out for yourself what that would look like and be able that to- met some bad roommates and, you know, a flunk semester when she didn't leave her room and lose it. That's okay. We made it. Okay. Yeah. We made yeah. it. And we came out the other day, but it's, that is our goal as parents, as ed cons, as program people, is how can this young person learn to self-accommodate what kind of support I have? And then as a parent, where does that come in? You know, maybe I'm going to still be able have to financially help because my kid can do 80%, but their job still doesn't have good insurance or whatever. Right. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, Karen, I've always loved and respected how well your brain works. You're honest. You have no guile. You say it like it is in a good way. I I love that you've talked on mentoring, that the shift from the parent power control has to shift to mentoring. I've loved that you've talked about the timeline differential, that our expectations don't match up with what their timeline is and that it's all okay. Um, that it's different and figure out what you need. I love that. It's a needs-based approach, whether you said it that way or not, I'm just 
kind of resummarizing the yeah. principles that we hit on all the time at, at Techie for Life, but also on our podcast um, that you've kind of figured out as a parent. And I, I think we as parents figured out way more as parents than we ever did as coaches or therapists. Uh, it's probably one of the reasons you're such an effective educational consultant as you've been there. Yeah. And the messy. Well, it is Not messy. And I, and I think two things, and I think it's important to know that, and that makes me believe in the work we do and understand that the work we do isn't about fixing it. It really isn't. It's about helping this young person understand this is my life and my brain, and this is how I'm going to have to live it. Not angry at the world, not angry at the parents. Like when they run into the discomfort that is their life, how can we help them figure it out and not be so angry and avoid? And that is the mission of all these treatment options, and then we can figure out how to support them. Yeah, we can't choose the game, but we can choose how to play it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things we can't control, uh, but yep. there are a lot of things we can. Absolutely. So how can people get a hold of you if they want to hear more about you and what you do? So I have a website. It's, well, first of all, if you spell my name correctly, you can always find me. It's an odd name. It's Karen Maybe, M-A-B-I-E. Like maybe yes, maybe no, but spelled weird. And then I have a website at theschoolsolution.com. And you can either give me a call there. All my information is there. You can send me an inquiry email Or if you really want a full hour or so conversation, no cost and no obligation, but really want to look at working with me, the quickest way to do that is fill out the client intake form, and then we can go from there. Well, thank you so much. This was very informative and I think helpful for a lot of listeners. I love that it's me. This is where the tire hits the pavement and what it actually looks like. And it's worthwhile. And these are the wonderful children that have been given to us to show us a different way to look at the world. And my daughter has been a great gift to me because I've missed a lot of things and she's shown them to me. Agreed. Thank you for that comment. We agree fully. All right. Well, thank you so much. And we hope everyone has a great week and and love those kiddos and help, help them figure out how they can accommodate themselves in this world. Yep. All right. Take care. Bye guys. Thanks for joining us on this episode of autism and neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. Bye.